Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had a conversation last week with Kellyanne Conway, the veteran Republican pollster, who served as counselor to President Trump and before that as his campaign manager. She's on tour with her new memoir, a book with a Biden-esque title, Here's the Deal. And I sat down with her before an audience at the University Club of Chicago to ask her exactly what the deal was. Here's that conversation. It's good to see you all. I've been here before for these, but the room wasn't quite as crowded. I don't know what's going on, Kelly. And welcome to Chicago. Yeah, I want to warn everybody if you came expecting a cable TV show to break out. It's, <laughs> you, you may be disappointed. I'd like, we're here to have a conversation. And I want to ask you, uh, this book is so interesting. Uh, just your journey is so interesting. And I want, to, I want to focus a little bit on how you became who you are. And your childhood, which was not a conventional childhood. Talk about that. Uh, your dad left when you were quite young. And t- talk about the experience of growing up in ATCO. Axelrod, first of all, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this really since the manuscript was delivered to the publisher quite a few months ago. I had Donna Brazil interview me for a C-SPAN afterwards. I was very insistent that I have uh, one of the other three women, really, who ever ran a presidential campaign. And to have the master right here is is quite exciting. I also want to thank the University Club, gorgeous room, each and every one of you for being here, those in the overflow room. And thank you for all your work at the Institute because training and inspiring and instructing the next generation really is the task for all of us um, mature, wise, old people at this point. I start my book saying, by every imaginable metric, I should have been a Democrat and a liberal yeah, I want to ask you about that. And a feminist. <laughs> and probably a man-hater, too. To David's point, I was raised in a house of all Italian Catholic women, South Jersey's version of the Golden Girls with the house coats and the cheesecake and everything. My father left when I was three. No child support, no alimony. Don't feel sorry for me and don't be mad at him. Uh, we met when I was 12, and we had a present loving relationship for 40 years until he passed away two years ago. Can and, I just interrupt yes, for one second please. and ask you about that? Um, that struck me as really hard. Um, your dad left. I think he left, and he, he married someone with whom he had, 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 a, had already had a child. Yes. Yeah. And so he left your house and moved in with someone else who had... How, how did you as a child process that, the absence of him? 
I didn't know what I didn't know. I had a lot of love around me, and many people, male and female, in my life, David and my extended family, who really were always there for me. And I grew up in this adult household and listened to conversations about abortion and adultery and homosexuality in the 70s and 80s and, and um, religion and the wars. I remember all of this, the impeachment of Richard Nixon. I was, I think, upset that he had preempted the young and the restless and the price is right. So I had these weren't alone on that. impeach Nixon buttons I made and put on my little skirt when I was seven or eight. And, but I have to tell you, I don't remember ever having a single political conversation in my childhood. We talked about all these issues, family, faith, freedom, kneeling for the Lord, standing for the flag, military family. The guys in my family were and still pretty much all of them non-college educated members of the unions, of the trades, plumbers, welders, carpenters, hairdressers for the women, iron workers. They graduate high school with their diploma and a skill certificate. They go to work the next day and they support themselves and their families for 40 years until they retire. God bless them. But in the case of my father, I guess I just didn't notice until I was older. I remember coming home from first grade one day hysterically crying. And I went to a Catholic school. I was always taller than the boys and chubbier than the girls. And the only one except for a girl whose dad had died in Vietnam to not have a father in the whole Catholic elementary school. So I always felt a little bit different, but I learned that different is unique, dressed up a little bit differently. And it gives you an entirely other perspective that maybe others don't have. And I worked with people like Ivanka Trump, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Even if you see Mika Brzezinski, you see these women who have made it on their own in their respective industries. Very successful, very powerful. And they learned from their fathers. They are their father's daughters, even though they've made it on their own. So they don't just start. They're not just hatched in adulthood trying to figure it out on their own. So I was the latter. But I feel that with my father, I met him when I was 12, and it meant an awful lot to my mother that I meet him, that I have a relationship, that the three of us have dinner. Why so did it take so for long? Her. He just wasn't around. He was around. He was in a few towns over, but I think he was embarrassed and very self-centered. But when I met my father, he asked for a second chance. And I'm glad I gave him one because I got a father and a half-brother in the process. And I learned the value as an imperfect Christian asking for mercy, redemption, second chances, and forgiveness, that if you ask it, you must also learn to grant it. And it was a very early, powerful message of my life. Um, And it's really helped me as total strangers, miserable as they all are and seem to be, you know, pick at me and my family and make fun of the way I look or the way I sound or where I work or who my boss is. Um, I've learned to pray for those people, David, because what's got everybody so miserable? Get out, walk the loop a little bit, get some fresh air, find a hobby that's not a total stranger. And um, I'll ask you later yeah. whether you prayed for the president, Trump. Of on, course, I pray for on, all uh, presidents. On, because he sometimes was guilty of that, you know. Yes, uh, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. But look, that childhood, I learned life lessons that steal me, S-T-E-E-L, in so many ways. And also, I think the greatest gift of, of growing up very humbly and very modestly, and I didn't know what we didn't have, they didn't make me feel like I was part of the adult worries, adult concerns. 
Part of that, David, is when Donald Trump comes in and starts talking about the forgotten man, forgotten woman, I add to it forgotten child because I'm a big school choice charter school advocate. I understood exactly whom he was speaking to. I understood why people were standing in line for hours at these rallies. Yeah. Well, he's clearly talking about a, the, you, you describe your, your, the male members of your family yes. and so on. Um, their jobs had been shipped so, out, of, you know, out of the country. I get it. Let me, let me ask you, um, you, you were, so you were driven, I would say, right from the beginning. Yes. That's very, very clear. You know, valedictorian in your high school. You were on the field hockey team. You spent your summers packing blueberries, became the uh, New Jersey blueberry princess. Is that right? Yes. There Is was it- no swimsuit competition. It was really just... <laughs> how good of a farm worker you were, and if you gave a good interview, yes. Yeah. There wasn't any dispute about that election. There was, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. And, um, Actually, somebody did say that she should have won, but <laughs> there was no recount, anyway. Uh, so, and through this, you had this extraordinary encounter that uh, impacted on your life. Who thought that being the Blueberry Princess would do that? But talk about that. Yes, thank you for it. First of all, I have to thank him for reading the book because um, I've given many interviews now. It's very obvious who reads the book and who doesn't. And uh, David read the book. We discussed it. And thank you for doing that because I think it just makes for a better interview. So it was September 1984. I'm a senior in high school. I'm going to miss the ability to vote in that year's elections by about two and a half months. But I'm a senior in high school. I'm co-captain of the field hockey team at the local Catholic high school. And I am first in the, in the class, and I was the Blueberry Princess. So I got to meet President Ronald Reagan. He came to Hamilton, New Jersey, to the middle of Bellevue Avenue, where two nights ago my friends and relatives had a big book event for me, very near to there. And I got to meet him. It was just a very brief, hello, how are you, shake the hand. I think there's a Polaroid or two a picture capturing it. But I was bitten and smitten almost immediately. And right before that, David, about a month or two before that, the local newspaper called the Hamilton News asked me to cover the two political conventions and write about them from the perspective of a high school senior. Now, I have to tell you, covering the conventions in Little South Jersey did not mean getting on a plane and getting to go and witness the conventions. It meant watching them on the big Magnavox where I was still the, our remote control. There was no such thing. It was me changing the channels. And I was excited in 1984 to watch Geraldine Ferraro, another Italian Catholic woman, congresswoman from Queens, reminded me an awful lot of the women who had raised me in that house. And Did I was excited. I'm going to be her someday? No, because I never had the courage to run like that. I knew I would never be her someday because it takes not just fire in the belly, but I think a lot of bile in the throat now to actually put your name on the ballot and run for something. But I watched Geraldine Ferraro, and the, of course the party out of power goes first, so Mondale Ferraro went first. I was really excited to hear her, and I thought she was inspirational and transformative and all of that, but I was very struck <clears throat> by the optimism and the peace through strength And I would say just sort of American message coming through from the sitting president, Ronald Reagan, who also talked an awful lot about what he had done in those first four years, which, as you know, because you worked for a two-term president, presidents have to make the case as to why you don't want to change horses midstream, why you need to keep going, why four years is just not enough. 
time to get everything done. You th do you think Trump did that in the last uh, election? No, I don't think he did enough of that at all. And, and I think that um, Vice President Biden was benefited. I write in my book by about May, I tell the president, I changed my mind. It's good for Vice President Biden that he's in the bunker, in the basement, whatever he was doing in that room in Wilmington, because we've never had such a golf, G-U-L-F, between the exposure of two presidential nominees, party nominees. You had maybe a total of an hour a week. We had quantified it, about an hour a week of Joe Biden. Maybe he'd go into a gymnasium, have people sit in those circles, or he'd give an interview for 10 minutes and maybe another one. So an hour or so a week of Joe Biden versus two hours a day of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's a lot of I Donald Trump. It's a lot of Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think that with Joe Biden, he became the not Trump. And there wasn't enough, I think there wasn't enough maybe scrutiny and conversation about many of the things we see now. Since we're here, as we're, we, we both were senior advisors to a president, and I, I often wondered about how you processed all the things that he said. And in the book, you, there's a great exchange where you walk in, he is on his phone, obviously tweeting, and he said, without this, I wouldn't have been president, I wouldn't have been elected. And you said, just make sure it doesn't get you unelected or something to that. Yes, exactly that. Yes. Yeah. So how many times, you, you went all through Catholic school, so you may not phrase it this way, but how many times did you have kind of WTF moments <laughs> where you said, I I can't believe he said that. And then what did you do about it? Well, several things. It started in the campaign where when I took over as campaign manager, and I write about that in the first part of the book as well, that amazing conversation and offer from the president. And the only person I told that day that President that Mr. Trump made me the offer was my husband, George, who was very pro-Kellyanne and very, very pro-Donald Trump at the time. And for a long time thereafter, George said, Kellyanne, I've listened to your pitch so many times. I've watched the men in the Republican consultancy, a walking RICO violation, by the way, um, still. I've watched them sideline you and dismiss you and denigrate you. This is your chance. And George said, he didn't just urge me to take the job. He insisted I do it. He said, you know, with you, Trump can win. And we talked about that. But I, I wanted to give you that context. So it started in the we'll, campaign. We'll get back to George. It started in the campaign where people would say to me, huh, Thank God you're there. Can you take his phone? Can you put a fake bluebird on the little Twitter app? That's what they were telling me. And I say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And I, I concluded, and I wrote in my book, David, I concluded that with Donald Trump and Twitter, and I told him that, he needs to tweet like we need to eat. It's just about better choices. And uh, I'd like to say... Too much of both is bad for you. Yes. So I, like to, I put in the book, it's true, that sometimes at 6 p.m. I'll have like the chicken kale salad, and by 9 p.m. my youngest and I are finishing the brownie pan, so it all balances out. But, um, but I would always tell Mr. Trump and then President Trump the tweets that I liked and the tweets that the public liked because you can actually look at the likes and the retweets. And for a while, those were when he announced who was visiting Trump Tower for transition, who he was interviewing for Secretary of State, um, what head of state had called and what they talked about. And then for a very long while, it was also his, I think, famous tweet about wearing a mask with him in a picture wearing a mask. I said, see, 
that's gotten something like something crazy, like 300,000 or 500,000 likes, which is almost impossible to do, maybe a million. I said, see, people want to see you go first. They want to see you set the example. And I think I checked on it recently as I was editing the book, David, and I believe the most famous tweets now are he and Melania saying they had COVID. You know, I, I hope the yeah. people who liked it just liked getting the information, didn't like the fact yeah. that they had COVID. Yeah, but that's not what, you know, but there I also, would there give also him counsel. like... I would give him counsel. I also say in the book, the, oh, sure. But there were many tweets you've never seen. There were what? Many tweets still in the draft box. Yeah. Well, but you didn't get a chance. He didn't say, hey, what do you think about this? Yes, he did. Many times. And, and then there were times that he didn't. There were times that he didn't. Uh-huh. There were times that he would send out a tweet that he had been thinking about for quite a while and sat in the draft box and then thought, today's a good day to come out with that, which I think is uh, very similar to he's probably got, I would imagine he's got a statement ready to go now announcing he's running for president again. And one day he's going to say, put that out today. Today's the day. And, but I want to say this. He is going to run for president. I know he wants to. And he's planning to. He'd like to run for president. He feels like he's got unfinished business. And Donald Trump is up there with the majority of Americans in everybody's polling. CNN's polling, Fox News is polling, New York Times polling, Washington Post polling. A majority of Americans that disapprove of the job that Biden and Harris are doing, including on every single major issue. Yeah. Go look at the polls. We can't just cherry pick polls when they're going well for the team. Um, you got to. Neither of them are. Them. Neither of them are. But I wanted to say this about the at tweets. At their peak here. I wanted to say this about the tweets. I think this is important. President Trump, President Trump, he presided over what I refer to as the democratization of information. What do I mean? I mean that this man, who had never held elective or military office before, who had no experience in Washington, D.C., which I think was charming, if not determinative, to millions of Americans to vote for him, I did not think it was charming that some of the people around him had no Washington experience and didn't yeah, seem to, we'll want get to that. learn much about Washington. But he made good in his promise to the forgotten men, forgotten women in many different ways, but in communication as well. The democratization of information means this, that every single American, really anybody throughout the world, received an instant, free of charge, presidential communication without going through the middleman. Now, the middleman didn't like it. The middleman tried to punish us and still does mightily, including his staffers. But the president telling the plumber who's looking at his phone, the stay-at-home mom, and the billionaire CEO all at the same time what's on his mind or why he's doing what he's doing, I think many Americans appreciated a more transparent, more forthcoming, more of the moment communication style from a president. We don't have that right now. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Well, the, he was unique in that way, for sure. Uh, but what about like the tr- what about sort of feeding, uh, feeding rage or propagating things that aren't true? Um, that that's not a positive thing. And that's something I would never do. No, it's not. And you know, respectfully, I don't want to argue today. But I think one of the biggest lies told to the American public in the last 
50 years is you can keep your plan, you can keep your doctor. That was a whopper. Um, people couldn't. And, you know, well... We, we, could get, we could get into a debate about that. No, and because, I, I think it's because important. He just addressed it. We were in a conference on disinformation. He, he uh, addressed it because it was a very small percentage for a very good reason ended up not having their plans because their plans were not uh, up to standard. But, uh, and those things happen. Uh, I don't think he intended honestly, to mislead people. You know, I think he was not well served because he wasn't exactly. told that. Uh, I don't think he intended in, to mislead people. In advance. But, they were misled. But... but you, the, the disadvantage of going right from your head to the, to the American people is sometimes that step is missed. Is this true? Uh, is, this, is, is this helpful? Is it appropriate? Uh, and I guess my question is, I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to be in your chair, uh, because you don't really have much, you don't have a lot of control over that. Well, there's some. In other words, uh, counselor to the president meant exactly that for me. I wanted to have a policy job. I think the women always get shoved into the communications jobs, the press jobs, the scheduling jobs, by and large. Um, and I said no to press secretary within an hour or so of President Trump winning. He offered me that job first, and he said, I want you to do what Josh Ernest does. And I said, well. Uh, and he said, you'd be a great press secretary. And I'm thinking to myself, I'd be a terrible press secretary. I'm not even sure what they do. I'm, I kind of even wonder now, to be frank with you. But I knew I wouldn't be good at that. It's difference between going on TV and talking about policy and being a good press secretary. Um, and I didn't want a communication job. I wanted a policy job. I actually didn't want to go to the White House at all, which I write about. But I yeah. did, and I'm glad I did. I, I, I had the but, same but conversation. But I still, yeah, I, well, of course, you have to. Your family's here in Chicago, and you've got a lot going yes. on. You, yeah. you had lived I, I an entire tell, life. I will tell you, I said to President Obama, Senator Obama, you know, I set my whole life up as a reporter and as a consultant so that I could tell anybody to go F themselves. <laughs> and I said, and you can't say that to the president of the United States. I said, I don't know, you know, I have these issues, as you point out, family issues and so on. I don't know if I'd be comfortable. And he gave me all the reasons why I should come in at the end of it. He said, and by the way, you can tell me to go F myself. Just don't do it in front of anybody else. There's that. So, and I'm sure and never, it never came to... Well, of course to, not. I'm sure be. you said Mr. President anyway. There is, I mean, a, a, a respect and deference level that should come with the office, no matter who it's occupant. But I did, I did speak up. I mean, that's why I didn't write a tell-all and bore most. I'm not speaking up now because I didn't speak up then because God knows I spoke up then. I don't understand the people who say, it's time to speak. Really? Now is the time to speak? I spoke up plenty then. And because I was one of the few people around him who knew him well, who had a great working relationship with him, and who had never called him Donald, I had already established a boss-worker relationship and was very clear about that. I told him when he made me campaign manager, the last thing I said to him, David, in that office that day was, Mr. Trump, can I say something else? He said, okay. And I said, because he said, you know, could you be campaign manager? I write all about it. And then I even self-sabotage then. Even that, that young girl, self-denying product of the self-denying Italian Catholic women who raised me, givers, not takers, said, well, why don't you think about it? We'll talk when you get back from Pennsylvania. Call me tomorrow. Instead of just saying yes and doing a cartwheel and going and telling the world he made me campaign manager, I, I raised self-doubt. But last thing I said to him was, Mr. Trump, I don't consider, consider myself your peer, I'll never address you by your first name. And he said, okay. I think he probably said, okay, honey. And 
He did. He said, okay, honey. And like blew a kiss from across the room because he's a germaphobe and uh, left for Altoona, Pennsylvania. And anyway, I, I think that, that... That's exactly that, how my relationship was with yeah. him. <laughs> well, I thought it was weird. But, don't, but didn't you show deference, even though you were in the bunker with, you know, you were in the trenches with Senator Obama winning that yeah. election with him? You have to show deference. Yeah. And people, and not everybody did. So when it came to delivering bad news or saying, I have a different opinion of that, or I don't think that's helpful, I write in the book about... You know, he calls me down to the Oval Office, which is not unusual. I go down with my folder. I'm ready to go. I'm all organized because I know the three things he had asked me to do or look into, and I'm ready. And I go down there, and he says, did you like my tweet? I'm looking around. I said, your tweet? I said, I don't know. It takes me 12 seconds to get here in three-inch heels. Did I miss it? And he says, um, he says no. And he mentioned the tweet. It was from earlier that morning. I said, well, I was going to be polite and not mention that tweet. It wasn't in my top 1,000 most favorite. I said, they just asked me about it on TV, and I sort of said, I don't really have a comment on that. And he said, oh, you know, Rupert liked it, I guess, Rupert Murdoch. And I said, well, Mr. President, uh, when I'm an 81-year-old male billionaire from Australia living in London, I'll like that tweet. But until then, so I was very honest. Otherwise, you really shouldn't have those jobs. You really shouldn't. Um, you have to be honest, respectfully honest. And we tangled. I have a couple times in the book, October 23rd, 2016, we tangled going up the stairs. We were on our way to Gettysburg, and people like Steve Banner were like, whoa, girl, whoa, you know. Um, we tangled well, if you have a big fight, about Obamacare. Yeah, it's a good fight. Yeah. Uh, we, we tangled about the Affordable Care Act. I was in the minority. Bill Barr and I were in the minority on May 4th, 2020, in the cabinet room at a meeting with 20 people around the table, uh, whether or not to take the Azar case all the way to the Supreme Court, the Affordable Care Act case. And I said, you already won in the Fifth Circuit. They affirmed the repeal of the Ob Obamacare mandate, which really is the heart of it. And now you're in the middle of a global pandemic. And women are the chief health care offices of our households. We are a majority of the consumers and a majority of the providers. You guys wouldn't even go to the doctor unless we told you it was time. Come on. And so I said, if you know you want to appeal to women and you're going to just take this all the way to the Supreme Court, and you know, we we tangled, but you know what? He heard he heard me. He didn't take my advice, but he always listened to it. And two hours later I was in the Oval for a different meeting altogether. He said, Did you see her in the over there in the cabinet room? She feels he said, Did you change your mind? I said, Mr. President, I'm not gonna change my mind. But my name wasn't on the ballot. I didn't, I'm not the President of the United States. But I appreciate that he listens to senior counselor to the President of the United States, even though we disagreed on that. And I thought he would lose that case at best seven to two, possibly nine to nothing. Yeah. Well, and let me just say on behalf of the, all the people like my daughter who have a pre-existing conditions and the 30 million Americans who got health care, I appreciated your point of view on that. But let me, let me just move on. You, you, one of the things you were truthful to him about, you left the White House, and we'll talk about why in a second, uh, because there's a very poignant sort of subplot in this whole book that I think is really important to talk about involving your family. But you left the White House uh, in the summer of 2020. You weren't really involved in the campaign. But as we talked about before we came out here, you spent your whole life looking at numbers. We never did get to the why you became a pollster, but you spent your whole life looking at numbers, studying the electorate, analyzing data. 
you had a bad feeling about the way the thing was headed for months before the election. There were just so many unknowns. I did leave the White House um, for my children, famously, more mama, less drama, and most days it's that way. Uh, and I was pained to leave my job because it's a job I loved very much. I was not involved in the 2020 election, and I think that history should, re should be reminded that Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, put himself as the campaign chairman. If you go back and look at any press clip anywhere, it says de facto chief of staff, de facto campaign manager in 2020, de facto president, all of that. And I know Jared wants people to forget that. So maybe when his book comes out in August, he'll be asked about my book, which very clearly states that after they screwed up politics in the Midwest, he tried to go make peace in the Mideast. I think that's a very noble cause. I'm glad for the Abraham Accords. I'm, I'm glad I worked for a president who kept the promise of seven presidents uh, to move the, the embassy to Jerusalem and to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Seven presidents made that promise. One kept it, Donald Trump. So I'm grateful for all of that. But I did not like the way the campaign was going. I felt it had become a lot like Hillary Clinton 2016, that it proved the old adage that the fastest way to make a small fortune is to have a very large fortune and waste most of it. And I bet there are Trump-Pence 2020 donors in this room, and I'm sorry for you. Because you, there was $1.4 billion. And you know what? The more money you have, I think the less hunger and swagger and creativity and innovation, and frankly, Donald Trump-like underdog, underestimated, uh, I'm glad he wasn't under-resourced and understaffed in 2020 the way we were in 2016, but there's something to that. And anybody here who's ever been white-knuckled about paying a bill or making payroll or wondering if your small business can actually survive, let alone thrive, you know what I'm talking about. That's what 2016 was. So, but, but, uh, so you, you felt badly. By the way, you, the, the day after the election, you write about being at the campaign headquarters. This is one of my favorite lines in the book she said only my second time there you uh you walk in you see a meeting going on behind a glass in a conference room through the glass a familiar scene was unfolding kushner and click the long-running and revolving group of men jared had collected around him to reinforce his instincts and praise his understated brilliance were in a deep hush so i drew from all of this and what you just said you're not like a big fan of jared <laughs> I'm very honest about the difficulty of having the son-in-law, albeit a very smart one, an accomplished one, having all this authority and no accountability. It's too wide. And Jared took it upon himself to get in my way an awful lot. I thought we could have learned an awful lot from each other. I did try to learn from him. I know other Democratic donors, um, but I did try to learn from him. And uh, he had no problem with me. Being the campaign manager, he had no problem with me and the very small team we had around us when we won in 2016. You know that euphoric feeling, and you know you're a band of brothers and sisters in a mm -hmm. campaign like that. You guys were the underdog. You know, you heard what we heard eight years later, David. Don't even bother. She's got it all wrapped up. You heard that in the primaries. We heard it in the general. So why not just stay together like that? But almost from the moment Donald Trump won, Jared was trying to ice me out in transition in the White House. And my life was hard enough. You know, I'm a mom of four kids at the time, seven, eight, 12, and 12. 
Okay, they're four sucky ages for mom to go into the White House. And yes, I'm their mother, not their father, respectfully. It is different, and it will always be different. So let's stop pretending it's not. Um, and I could have used a little bit more support and a little less interference. But this wasn't about me. This was about the president no, I understand. asking people to get along. But I also didn't like the way the campaign was being run for another reason. Why all this money being spent on a Super Bowl ad? Why a Super Bowl ad? Eleven and a half million dollars. I, I, we have no Why the president in Oregon? Why in Minnesota? And then I think they did not pay attention to what was happening with COVID. Obviously, COVID changed the entire election. Yeah. And the president said, if we have mail-in ballots, we're, we're screwed. We're not going to win if we have these mail-in ballots. I think his campaign should have spent a little bit more time on the dirty work. In other words, the process, not just Of getting voters to use those ballots. Of getting voters to use them. Uh, so let me ask you this. Um, you knew it was going badly. You obviously looked at the numbers when, you, when they were available to you, public or private. Um, and after the election, you were one of the people who were saying, they handed you on the 5th of November, you're right, uh, a release saying um, Pennsylvania, we won Trump Pennsylvania, won Pennsylvania. Put it in the bank. Now, I forget, uh, he lost by 100,000 plus, 130 or 20 something, ultimately. Well, not at that point. Yes. But you didn't read that. You wouldn't read that. And you were one of the people who told the president that. Uh, I was. That was two days after the election. What happened election night, I happened to be one of probably less than 200 people in the White House because the, the party was really reduced because of COVID. Most people were at the hotel. And I said to the president, Mr. President, don't worry about Pennsylvania. We won Pennsylvania, I think, by 40, less than 40,000 votes in 2016, and at that moment, he was ahead by something crazy like 700,000 votes. They hadn't counted all the ballots. And, um, but he did have a data guy there telling him, I don't know, he might come up short. And the data guy is not somebody you know. Um, Those are usually the people, you know, not household names are telling you the truth. And I said to President Trump, Mr. President, don't worry about it. It's like 4 a.m. in the map room, and I said, you, we won Pennsylvania by about 44,000 votes last time. You're ahead by 700,000. And um, that was wrong because ultimately, now I will say, if you asked me to give you an example of malfeasance and improprieties in the 2020 election, I'd point to Pennsylvania. I don't like that you had election officials who are not officially elected to anything, keeping the polls open after the deadline, opening up okay. ballots days later. Uh, over the weeks that followed, you you were one who went to him and said... You can't coming up short. Now, he was pissed that you wrote that in the book. Well, he said that at the time. He told Have me you spoken he, to him since then? Oh, yes, of course. Several uh, times, at least. He said, I re- he told me he read my book. But the... Um, I'm sure he did. The... Um, <laughs> He ought to because it's got a lot of nice things about him in there. Yeah, I'm sure he liked that. Yeah, the um, the you 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 had an interesting on on the fifth of of November. Maybe that was two days later. Yes. Yeah, that you said uh, you were in, you were in the Oval Office and and Jared walked in. He said, "Oh, you guys can deal with the messaging. I have to deal deal with the mayor. They're cooking something up." And you said. Oh, Muriel Bowser. Yeah, I said, what does she DC. want? I thought he meant the mayor of D.C. He said, no, Rudy Giuliani. Yep. So 
This leads to the question of everything that led to, you believe that Joe Biden won the election. Well, unfortunately, I don't think the election was fair everywhere, but he is the president, and it's obvious he's the president because but you, you believe that we're really he suffering. Got more, got more votes than, than President Trump. I believe that he got more electoral votes than President Trump, yes, and that's how you win these things. Um, and obviously he got more of the popular vote. Yes, I don't like what happened. I want to make this very clear. I don't like what happened, and folks, neither should you. We can't have people opening up ballots and just saying, you know what, I think because of COVID, we have to keep the polls open. You can't do that in the state of Pennsylvania, which clearly says you can't change things unless you go through the Constitution. There are other states where you can apply for emergency appeal. Okay, to Kelly, judge, I don't want to go down there. this rabbit no, hole. I know you don't. I, I don't want to go down but that rabbit hole. people need to feel comfortable about the elections. I don't so, like the Zuck bucks. So, I don't. I don't. In, in 2016, David, Mark Zuckerberg let us do what we wanted. We, we, I'm sorry. In 2016, we spent tens of millions of dollars on ads, $5.9 million Facebook ads. And you know what Zuckerberg did? Nothing, which is what he should have done. He should have left us alone, taken our money, ran the ads. $400 million, I don't like it. Now we're fully in the rabbit hole. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now... Back to the show. Are you going to play a role in in the GOP in 2024? What does your gut tell you? Is Trump going to run? Which you answered. And the same question about Governor DeSantis. So Trump, President Trump would like to run for a second term. He always planned on having a second term. Unfinished business. I am with a majority of Americans who does not approve of the job at all that Biden and Harris are doing. And um, I wish I can tell you otherwise because I love this country. We live in it at this time. But they don't seem to do anything well. If they do, please show me the poll that says that or please tell me what it is because I'd like to open my mind a little bit more to that. So, yes, I share a vested interest with a majority of Americans, including a majority of independents, who want Biden and Harris gone. Um, and we'll see what happens. I first will always consider how it affects, first of all, my best and highest interest, my best and highest use, excuse me, and how it affects my four children who are always come first. Um, governor DeSantis has done a remarkable job as governor of Florida, came within 32,000 votes of losing to Andrew Gillum, who I think was indicted yesterday or something happened, investigated just yesterday, a troubled person I'll pray for. Um, and since then has raised over $100 million, has, is on track to have a monster re-election and has been really smart, David, to focus on his re-election and not get too involved with too many other races. Um, I love the donors. They're so successful in life. They're wonderful men and women in the Republican Party. They're often wrong about who's next. Um, for president, they went for Scott Walker, Chris Christie, anybody named Bush, um, Tim Pawlenty at the time. Uh, all people, by the way, I like and respect. Some of them are actually, two, at least two of them are close personal friends of mine I speak to often, regularly. But um, the grassroots are going to be most important. I think one, one big test for Governor DeSantis is does he like to be around, mix it up with the people as much as he likes to be in those press conferences? But he, he has done a great job, um, in, and, and, and he's proven that he can go toe-to-toe with the media, which is important for any Republican presidential aspirant. He's proven he can take risks 
and peek around the corner and show vision like he did on COVID, frankly, against everybody's advice and against a lot of criticism. And he's also proven that he can govern in a state with a massive budget surplus without raising taxes, which is important to many people. Fast forward to the events of, of January 6th, which you write about. You say you didn't, weren't really paying attention until someone got you. I saw you. Don Jr. You, tweet. You, you very, you're very close to Mike Pence. Yes. And his, and his wife. Uh, you, were, you were his pollster when he ran the Republican Congressional Committee. Um, so now you tune into the scene and, and there governor. are people, and governor, there are, there are scenes outside the Capitol of uh, gallows and people chanting, hang Mike Pence. Uh, by now you're tuned in and you see this, this uh, tweet from the president basically castigating Pence for not having the courage to do the right thing. And this was read to the crowd by the leaders of this insurrection. What did you feel at that time, as someone who obviously has deep, deep affection for the Pences, and did you, is that when you called the White House and said, or texted the White House and said, call off the dogs here? What? I, called the, I called the White House earlier. As soon as I was focused, I made it a practice after having to just watch TV all the time for years. I took myself off TV for 10 months, and I had none in my home office, and that's where I was. And I saw a Don Jr. tweet pop up. I guess he was already at the airport, and he said, this is not who we are. Protest peacefully. Whatever his tweet was, you can look it up. And I said, what's going on? So I ran downstairs, turned on the TV, and of course, it was one that I went through the Twitter feed. I called immediately then because it was very obvious that people with Trump flags and other things were inside the Capitol. And look, we do have to have the right to peacefully protest in this country. I'm the first person in the Trump-Pence White House to refer to what happened to George Floyd as murder. And we, we saw those protests. They weren't all peaceful. Um, and we've seen protests are not all peaceful. But people don't breach the building, for God's sake. They throw their bodies up against the door of the Supreme Court. They cry. A guy lit himself on fire, I think, died recently. God forbid. But you don't breach the building. And so I was tweeting that. And I called the White House. And I usually call the president on his cell phone or one of his cell phones, or I go through the switchboard, so it's a secure call. There was no time for that. So I called someone I knew would be standing next to him, called that person's government cell phone, so it's public record, obviously, and said, this person said, would you like to speak to the president? I said, no, I can speak to the president later. But these people need to get out of there. What are they doing there? Who told them that that was okay? So you're, you're actually piecing together information about Vice President Pence that I learned later. I don't remember on, at so that point. So you didn't point, speak to him that day? I did not speak to him that day. If um, I did, it must have been later in the night. But no, I did not. And I said, I said then what I'll say now. I went on George Stephanopoulos' show live and said then that I had just received a call from Mayor Bowser's office about the National Guard. Now I'm out of the White House. I'm like in my sweatpants at home. And I, and I said, she, they called me. And they said, I said, well, what's going on? I said, does the president know that you made that request? Does um, Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller know you made that request? Sometimes people speak on behalf of the president without cluing him in. I've witnessed that too many times. Um, speak for him without asking him. So it was all very, you know what I felt? I felt out of the loop. I felt chaotic. I felt that there was a crisis. I felt, and I was glad the president went out and spoke because the tweets were not, and I said that. He needs to go down there with a bullhorn or, you know, people aren't stopping. People in the Capitol aren't stopping to look at their Twitter feed. Um, and I didn't know what they were doing in there. So 
I write about that, and I say about January 6th at this moment, I'm still in shock and not in awe. Um, I don't think people should have been in solitary confinement. I think they should have known their fate a long time ago. There have to be federal crimes yeah. to prosecute when you say hang my Well, pets. hundreds of people have pleaded guilty and hundreds and, and, uh, and others have been Good, convicted. Because the 74 million Trump Pence voters minus 662 were not in the Capitol that day. And I get a little tired of everybody being so, seen all the uh, same. Just re- really, really quick, because I do want to talk about your family and the cost of all of this to, uh, to your family. But, you know, when we talk about the election, when we, when we talk about January 6th, a lot, those people who were there January 6th were people who believed that the election had been stolen. Uh, the election hadn't been stolen. Uh, isn't that dangerous for a democracy to, when large numbers, I told you about a poll earlier that I saw where only 33% of Republicans say they generally believe that elections are fairly administered and accurately counted. This is a recent poll. 70% of Republicans believe the election was illegitimate. Isn't that dangerous when people begin to believe that? And, and isn't that sort of on him for promoting that idea? First of all, the president believes that he won the election. He believes it right now. And other people believe that too, millions of them. Yeah, because he told them that. Well, they also believe it because they read that there's somebody in Arizona signing an affidavit that they were yeah. guilty of ballot harvesting. They hear things are coming out of Georgia. You're not going to believe it. I think in Wisconsin, there's a clear legal case is still being litigated. There's three questions of law there about whether you can change who is um, unduly confined. Kellyanne, there were, 61, there were 62 cases in court on this. You already know how I feel. I'm the guy who told President Trump the earliest he came up short for December 14th when the electors were going to certify the election. That's the only date I had in mind because I wasn't even... There were other people who said, well, we've got another bite at the apple called January 6th. And David, respectfully... In full disclosure, I think they got that from people like Chairman Benny Thompson, who refused to certify the election results in 2005. Why? J- George W. Bush won re-election handily over John Kerry and John Edwards. He, to this moment, has not certified that election. There are re- Democrats right now who have never certified a Republican Kellyanne, presidential election in this century. I, so I, I, you're there are people you're, who believe it, including Donald Trump, that he won the election. You and I come from the same world, and... You're terrific at what you do, and you're doing what we, are, we train our people to do, which is when you get a difficult question, kind of change it's the subject. It's not difficult at all. I but, I, but, I, but, but the question is on this, on this. Shouldn't we all agree, I mean, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, shouldn't we all agree that the last election was a, a legitimate election and that our elections are generally fairly administered and accurately counted. That is the norm in America. If we stop believing that, what do we have? I don't know why Stacey Abrams and Karen Jean-Pierre say that the election was stolen from her in Georgia. Okay, all right. Well, I'm sorry that you got she, other people she, saying she, it. I think yeah, everybody she, she also ultimately recognized that he is the governor, you know. Well, so. she's running against him, so anyway. she must not think she's the governor. Well, that's, that's the process. I also just want to say, I think that the lies coming from the podium are very dangerous. I what? think the lies coming from the White House podium are very dangerous. Okay. You can't tell us everything is going well in Afghanistan. Americans right. are not okay. stranded there. This is what I'm talking about, about the let's go on to change the subject. So let me change the subject. Let me change the subject. 
That is the subject. Let me, let me, let me change the subject. Because this, uh, part of, and it's very well known and very well, there's a lot of intrigue about your personal life, and I regret that because it's hard enough to serve in public life and then to have your personal life tumble out into public is very, very painful. Uh, and, um, you know, your husband, George, mentioned earlier, became quite a critic of Donald Trump, quite, as you point out, an aficionado of Twitter himself. So this became a source of fascination, like what's going on at their house? And you give some sense of that here. And you end your book with this, these lines, democracy will survive, America will survive. George and I may not survive. Uh, Mimi once told me, your mom, uh, that uh, we hurt deeply as we love, that our joy uh, as deeply as we love, that our joy and grief are in proportion. I learned that when she and my father, my childhood friend Christine and other people and I adored passed away. And I've learned it again recently. I will always love George even if I don't fully understand what happened or why it was worth the high cost to him. And I notice the discerning reader will look at the cover of your book where your left hand is over your right hand and there's no ring on your left hand. And so tell me, was it worth the cost? I I know that you feel, and you can talk about this, that you're bewildered by what he did. Um, But this is a pretty high cost for you and your family, your daughter, so the reason you left the White House was active on social media herself. Well, I left the White House because my children ridiculously were about to start their second school year online um, because some health commissioner in Montgomery okay. County, Maryland, decided after everybody was told go have a great summer, including by the doctors at the White House, we were going to you know, have them online again. Screen time is school time. But I think we need a quick review of what exactly it is George did and didn't do. Um, first and foremost... For those of you who haven't read, read the book or maybe won't read the book, George owes no allegiance to a political party or President Trump or President Biden or anything like that. That is not the objection. His vows were to me, and the vows were not to agree with me politically. The vows were to love, honor, and cherish, and some other things, as we all know. Um, everybody should know that in 2016, known as the year of the tweet, George Conway sent zero tweets. He has now sent well over 100,000 of them. Again, that's his right, but you should know that. You should also know that George, like me, was absolutely exhilarated when Donald Trump was elected and Mike Pence was elected on uh, in the wee hours of November 9th, 2016. I was too tired exhilarated to... Exhilarated for you? That would be a natural well, thing. Well, he was exhilarated for me, but he was at Trump Tower many, many nights helping me out. He was the one driving me to Trump Tower the day after Access Hollywood, two days after Access Hollywood, don't even think of quitting. Uh, He can do this. He came to the debates. He's my person. He's my husband. He was my person. He's my sounding board and uh, my safety net. And that's all gone now. And it's gone for what? For politics? For the January 6th committee hearings as told by George Conley on CNN? For what? And I write in the book, you know, you have to decide if you'd rather be right or rather be loved. And I'm not the one who made that decision, frankly. I never would have moved to Washington, D.C. with and moved my four children to new schools um, unless we did that as a couple, unless we did that as a family. The other thing George and I have in common, in addition to two decades plus of marriage and four teenage children, pray for me, um, is David. George and I both accepted big jobs 
from President Trump. That's just a fact. You're not going to hear that in a CNN interview where I'm asked about George and George is never asked about me, even though I'm the one with the big job in the White House. Hello, sexism. Hello, double standard. That's beyond bias. That's like a quadruple standard. And it is. And I don't care if you like Donald Trump or not. That's complete bullshit. And you know it. Why am I going on CNN and having Wolf Blitzer play clips of George Conway from MSNBC, the rival network whose ratings are a lot better than CNN's these days, and playing clips of George and asking me and asking me what I think of that just to try to embarrass me in front of my four children. And I said to Wolf, wow, this is CNN now? You know, Wolf, I used to watch you when I was in college and law school to find out what was going on in the world. What's going on? This is important. And now it's this. But George can go on with his personal friend, Jake Tapper, and never be asked a single question about me who actually works in the White House, actually works at all. And again, that's beyond bias. That's next level. That's just trying to not get the story, but get the president and the people around him. Now, again, George accepted a big job, in case you're wondering what it was. Head of the civil division at the Justice Department. It's a big job. You know that. He worked in the administration. And um, he had gone and interviewed staff. He had seen his office. He was all in. And then he put out a statement, gave a statement to the president, not on Twitter, because he wasn't on Twitter yet, put out a statement to President Trump the end of May, beginning of June 2017, and said, thank you so much for the honor of the nomination. I need to withdraw my name because we can't both have these big jobs at the same time. I continue to support you, Mr. President, the work of your administration, of course, that of my wonderful wife. And five days later, started tweeting. Again, he can change his mind. Uh, he's talking about the January 6th, but the media made him whatever they wanted him to be. He's a constitutional law expert. He's a political consultant. He's a psychiatrist diagnosing his non-patient Donald Trump. All I wanted him to be was my husband and the father of my kids. So, so let, yes, me, let me ask painful, you. It, uh, but it's totally uh, unnecessary. Let me, let me ask you. All in, was it worth it? I know you work at CNN, so you'll probably never ask George that question, but somebody should. I'm happy to ask George that question. I've tried to, I've tried to, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm, to I'm a great, I'm a great well. wife and a great mother. I'm a, I, know, I don't mind asking him that question, I, I, but, uh, but he's I mean, the argument now. about Donald Trump is he never changes, right? So he didn't, I didn't. Um, so... Anyway. That's a different question. The culpability, it's a different question. Not the question is just personally. Um, well, first of all, I should tell you what I loved, what I don't regret at all, which is I loved my job. I loved being a public servant. I know you got to be a public yes, servant no, later I, in life, and yeah. I just think you have this different appreciation. Yes. David Axelrod, Kellyanne Conway, well, later in life public servants. But and we also walked away from millions and millions of dollars to go get a government salary in the White House. I know you did. So did I. But... I, I loved being able to be, honestly, a tiny, tiny molecule that's trying to affect positive change for people. And I've met them. You know the people that you've impacted. You've, you know their names. They come up. They run up. Thank you so much. Um, we got the VA Choice Act or Mission Act. Thank you so much. I got my job back in manufacturing. Thank you so much. Uh, whatever it is they're no, saying, no, it really matters. And I worked on the drug crisis. No, for sure. And I worked on the drug crisis. And we got drug overdose deaths down for the first time in 30 years. And now over 107,000. So yes, it was, it was. Well, I love my public service job. And I would do that again. I loved working okay. um, in public service. All right. Well, something that I wish I had asked you about before, which is a really kind of revealing story. And that is when you... Uh, the president called you in. He was unhappy about something your husband said. He was sitting in the dining room. He had Melania Trump on the 
on the uh, speakerphone, and he uh, expressed his displeasure, and Melania spoke up, and this is how you quote her. She said, Donald, I'm not going to try and imitate her voice. Donald, this is not her fault, and she's a big girl, strong and confident. We don't control our husbands, and you don't control us. Melania Trump said that. She's right. So, what, uh, so just as, in, as we talk about uh, her and, and uh, the role that she plays, and what, yes. what don't people know about her that they should know? Melania Trump's a big character in my book because I know her well. She said publicly recently that she's grateful for our friendship, so I'll say that we're friends if she says so. But that's a, that's a gift to me. We, our relationship was forged through fire. We were in a very small campaign together. And President Trump um, has in Melania Trump, the woman I refer to, David, as the original counselor to the president. She sees and listens to things um, in the media, in um, books that other people have written about the White House or about politics or policy that the rest of us had not seen. And she is a great sounding board for him, and she is the first person to say, I give him my advice. I tell him what I think is best. Sometimes he takes my advice, and sometimes he doesn't. That sounds like a marriage to me, by the way. And that also sounds like a two-person working relationship, meaning she gives advice, he takes it. She gives him it. She, he gives her advice. She takes it or doesn't. He takes it or doesn't. But I was very, very fortunate and blessed to witness their marriage up close and personal. That is a loving relationship of many, many years now, two decades plus they've been together. She is an excellent mother to Baron, who always puts him first. And she was a fantastic first lady who got a lot done um, and was not treated as fairly and as warmly as other first ladies who I don't necessarily think do much. Maybe we don't expect them to do much. And if her, I know her well, if I spend time with her, if her, if her husband runs again, she'll be right there. But that's his, you know, that's your decision. Well, I, have, I have great, I have great. Um, and that's, by the way, that was a total boss feminist move. I don't care what you yeah, think yeah. and who I, you like. For her to say to her husband, we don't control our husbands and you don't control us. Here, yeah. here. Certainly the fact that she was a champion of cyberbullying shows that sometimes he listens and sometimes he doesn't. So anyway, Kellyanne Conway. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 